Is there a conspiracy to keep you an out-of-shape slob? And then we take a look at a truly terrifying story from the conspiracy theory iceberg. We talk a lot about religious miracles and visions, but what happens when the vision could be a haunting? Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. Hope you guys are having a great day too. First off, let's give a shout out to our newest Patreon, Joel Gonzalez. Joel? Joel, right? Gonzalez? Thank you so much for supporting the show. If you can, you're going to be our captain this episode, our pilot. If you can't support the Patreon, that's fine too. Just help get the word out about the show. Really helps out a lot. We also have a merch store. We got some awesome merch, and I'm still sending out stickers. I think I'm almost done sending out stickers, so I'll reveal the design really soon. Joel, let's go ahead, and we're going to start off in the Jason Jalopy. We're going to take a little road trip. We're headed up to Colorado. We're headed up to Colorado State University, specifically. I know Colorado's a big state. We'll get there eventually. We'll just drive around. We, we talk a lot about the conspiracy. Actually, both stories today are from the conspiracy theory iceberg. This story is from the fitness conspiracy theory iceberg. It's interesting. I've seen a lot of these icebergs come out. A lot of you guys mail them to me. That's great. I really appreciate it. This one is all fitness related. Joel, we're going to pull up to the Colorado State University. It's 1973. It's May 1973. Hope you brought your bell bottoms. Chest hair is all showing. I didn't plan on coming in 1973. This is what I normally wear. We walk in. There we're going to meet a dude named Casey Vitor. Casey Vitor. Now, he used to be a bodybuilder. He used to be really into bodybuilding. He actually won some bodybuilding competitions. But when he was working out a couple years ago, he sliced the tip of his finger off, had to go in for a tetanus shot. The tetanus shot almost killed him. He dropped from 200 pounds to 167 pounds. Part of it was depression. Part of it was almost dying from a tetanus shot. You know, bad combination of things. Bodybuilding is all about building mass. You know what what bodybuilding is, right? So his bodybuilding career was kind of falling apart, but he was a gifted athlete. He's down on his luck. He's sitting there. He's just like, oh, his finger, his finger's like barely holding on. He has a Band-Aid. He's like, oh, in between all the weight loss, depression, and tennis shot, I forgot to have my finger reattached. Oh, well, it's all blue like him. But his finger is physically blue. He is depression blue. And then one day he hears a knock on his door. Uh, come in. I can't open the door. I, I'm missing a fingertip. And this dude walks in. His name's Arthur Jones. And he's like, Casey, I'm here to change your life. And so Arthur and Casey get together. They go on a little road trip. They go up to Colorado State University. Arthur Jones, he's the inventor of the Nautilus system, which is a home, a highly advanced home workout system. A lot of, that's not a steam train. That's me lifting weights with like the bars, the plates on them that like slap against each other. A weightlifting machine. You know what I'm talking about, right? It's not like free weights. So now we were waiting here the whole time at Colorado State University. I had to do that background. Now we're sitting there. And we see Arthur and Casey walking up the steps. And I'm like waking waking Joel up. Dude, the story's starting. The story's starting. He's like, huh? What? What? So we wake up. And he's like, come on in, you schlubs. We're going to work out. I'm going to show you what's really going on. So Arthur walks in. Music starts pumping up. Casey's still a little depressed. But we all got on sweatbands and stuff like that. Unitards. And we're just doing a musical montage. <laughs> Lifting weights and stuff like that. Just sweat everywhere. This is pre-coronavirus. So we're like right next to each other. Sweat from my face is falling on you. You're like, ah. Here's what happened. 
Here's what happened. While we're working out, we see what's really going on. Arthur Jones invented this system. So he had the Nautilus home system, but he actually invented these prototype machines. And what he was trying to do was this thing called negative reps. So you get assistance lifting the weight up, and then it's all on you. Casey would come into this gym. They'd have him sit. Sometimes he did the workout on machines, and sometimes he had spotters. But the way the machine was designed is it would be really easy to get the weight up. You had to slowly lower it down. So negative reps. Instead of pushing up like you're on the bench press and then bringing it back down, you could have more weight put on you, lifted up, and then you would have to bring it down nice and slow. Otherwise, you die. And then your assistants pick it back up for you. Called negative reps. He built machines, prototype machines that do this as well. So you didn't need a spotter. The machine would actually lift up a super heavy amount of weight, and then you would have to slowly bring it down. This was Arthur Jones. It wasn't just Arthur Jones and a sweaty dude working this out. They had a bunch of scientists because really people wanted to see if this was going to work. They put him on a diet. He had to eat four to 5,000 calories a day. And the scientists are looking at each other, and they're like, that's nowhere near enough for his type of workout. What type of workout is he doing? We already talked about the negative reps. But he only did one 30-minute workout. Every other day. So it's not like he was in there for three hours. A lot of bodybuilders, man. That's their job. They're spending like two, two, three hours in the gym. 30-minute workout every other day. Eating four to 5,000 calories a day. The goal was to see how much muscle he could put on in 28 days. Now, normally, the average person can gain one to two pounds of muscle per month. And it's very hard to gain muscle. I don't know how many of you out there have actually tried to put on muscle weight. It's way easier, I believe. I think science believes this. I don't think this is Jason thing. It's a hundred times easier to lose weight than it is to put on muscle. It's so easy to lose fat as it is opposed to build up muscle. The average person can put on one to two pounds of muscle a month. If you're lucky. You might have to go mad. That's a gallon of milk a day. You might... I don't know if that's a meme diet, honestly, but... You need a lot of protein to put on just one to two pounds of muscle a day. If you have a high-intense workout, it's possible you can put on 20 pounds in three months. If you really, really push yourself, you mind all your P's and Q's. You're really, really working at it. You can put on 20 pounds in three months. Focusing on negative reps, using this experimental Nautilus prototypes, they hired a bodyguard to follow Casey around so they would be able to prove he was doing no steroids. The first week... The first week, Casey gained 27 pounds of muscle. Now, listen, I know you guys don't believe that. There have been scientific papers written about this. This was groundbreaking. There's a great article in the show notes. It was on T Nation. It was called The Colorado Experiment, Fact or Fiction. And it really goes, it was written by someone who went through the notes, who was a contemporary, who wasn't there at the time, but was a contemporary of these scientists who was working on this. They went through the notes and they went through all the notes and they actually replicated some of this as well. But they said, you got to understand, Casey was a gifted athlete. He was a gifted athlete. He had dropped 40 pounds from 200 pounds to 167 pounds when he stopped competing, when he was depressed. But still, okay, he's a gifted athlete. People say he was just rebuilding muscle that he had already lost. Possibly, possibly, right? He went from 200 pounds to 167 pounds in the first week. Even, even, uh, even saying that, that's still a massive gain. In the first week, he gained 27 pounds of muscle. He lost 7 pounds of fat. 
His total weight gain in 28 days, muscle weight gain in 28 days, 63 pounds of muscle in a month. He was 200 pounds. He dropped down to 167. He puts back on the 27 pounds. That's the muscle he lost. He put on an additional 35 pounds in the remaining three weeks of that month. The article that I mentioned earlier was written by Ellington Darden. He's a PhD, and he was writing this article. So it wasn't some just guy writing for T Nation, with Testosterone Nation is what the T stands for. Guy who has his reputation on the line, right? And he's like, I knew the, I knew the scientists who were working on this. I went over the research, and he actually tried replicating this program as well. And what he got was you, it's, it's an, all about the negative reps, and he got people to put on 18 pounds in 11 days. Sometimes it would take um, more time. He had people that would take him 10 weeks to put on 18 pounds. But that's still much better than one to two pounds a month. If this works and it's able to be replicated, how come we don't have these machines? It's funny because I tell you exact. these are all prototype machines. They were never released to the public. I can almost guarantee you they were all death traps. I can almost guarantee you that's the reason why. They may, they may be like... NFL teams that may own some of these, but I bet you they're, I bet you not. I bet you they're super, super dangerous. Negative reps hold a far higher ceiling for, think about it, because if if you guys, because again, I used to really lift weights before my tennis elbow, and now I have a hard time doing anything, but in high school, I was really into weightlifting. You know when you're doing a bench press, you know when your hands get under there, right when you try, you're like, nah, this is too heavy, and you're smart. Like, you know there's heavy, too heavy, and then this will kill me heavy, and you start to lift, and you're like, no, nah, I'm not strong enough for this, and you'll take a couple plates off, or a plate off, or whatever, but with a negative rep, that's removed. It's already up in the air, and of course, your spotters are there if things really go bad, but if you have a machine that's mechanically lifting it up for you, and assisting on the lift so much heavier than you could lift on your own, that was the point. You were doing these super high intense workouts where you're lifting more than you could ever lift and then you're slowly bringing it down. You people would be getting killed all the time. How many people are just total blowhards and they're like, what? I can do a thousand pound hip sled. And then obviously they can't. But if they are think they can and it's already extended fully and, you know, they're dead. They're dead. The machine's done its part. It lifted a thousand pounds in the air. Now your legs have to lower it. It would be getting people killed left and right. So it does seem that it is possible to put on, at the very least, 18 pounds in 10 weeks. At the very least. That was seemed to be, even when they were replicating, that was the farthest one down. So that would be, that would be a, a, over a pound a week, which is still better than what modern science thinks you can do. But it is locked away. These secrets to physical fitness are locked away because people would most likely get killed. But if you have a good training partner that you really trust who you don't owe money to or haven't been sleeping with their significant other, you may want to get some people together. And that's what the author of this piece recommended. That with the right team, you got good spotters. You can. Re- he gives a full workout plan in the article. These are the exercises we did. It's not magical. Pay nineteen ninety nine. In this article on T Nation, it'll list all the exercises, the breakdown, the negative reps, how to do it. Please don't kill. Please don't kill yourselves, guys. But amazing. That's again on the conspiracy fitness iceberg. Very very fascinating thing. The secrets to the physical fitness universe locked away on some random fitness website. 
So, Joel, let's hop in that carpenter copter. We're flying away. We're leaving behind Colorado. We are headed out to Limpias. That is in Cantabria in Spain. This is also from the Conspiracy Theory Iceberg. So we got two for one here. Pretty pretty interesting combination. Generally, what I'll do is I'll read. I'll find a new topic, and I'll read about it, and then I'll try to debunk it. And a lot of times, I'm able to take a cheat route. I'll just look for other people who've debunked it. Now, sometimes it's like the one-off Bigfoot story. Person's walking through the wood. Bigfoot jumps out from behind the tree. Unless that person also has, like, unless that person's been arrested for lying in a country where lying's illegal. You, you can't really debunk that. Every so often, you'll find something. So those type of stories, I just try to use common sense or just tell them as they are an entertaining story. But a story like this, I go, well, I'm sure there's, a, I'm sure someone's run a debunk on this, right? There's nothing. Not a single thing that would pop up. And this is pretty high profile, too. So I was a little shocked. Near Limpius is San Sebastian de Garabandel. And that is where you had a very famous sighting of Michael the Archangel and the Blessed Virgin Mary appear. So you had people pilgrimaging to that area. People still go to both of these areas to this day. Now, despite the fact that Garabandel's, the visitation of St. Michael and the Blessed Virgin Mary at Garabandel came later than what happens at Limpius. Limpius definitely still seems to be the lesser known of the two. So, Joel, let's go ahead and land that carpenter copter. We're back in the year 1914, and we're sitting outside the Church of St. Peter. Now, the Church of St. Peter, in it, they had a life-sized crucifix of Jesus Christ. The crucifix of itself dated back to, like, the 1700s. It's old work of art. Old religious icon, actually, would be a better term for it. It's a life-size, it's six feet tall, a life-sized crucifix of Jesus Christ up in the church. It's 1914, and there's a monk, and he his job is to go fix a light that's hanging over the altar. So he gets a ladder, he's up there, and he's fooling around. He's probably not fooling around, he's probably actually doing his job. He's not, like, juggling light bulbs. But he's up there, and he's looking face-to-face with Jesus. He's eye-level with Jesus. He's, you know, trying. he's not really paying attention to the crucifix. He's trying to do his job. He's working on the light. And then he finds himself drawn to look into the eyes of Jesus. And he's looking at it. And he's looking at it. And he's noticing that the eyes are slowly closing. Trick of the light. Hot day. Been touching hot light bulbs all day long. Who knows? But the eyes stay closed for nearly five minutes. So it's not like when you see something out of your corner of your eye. He's staring right at this thing. This crucifix that had been created long before he was born, would survive long after him, had changed and now had closed eyes. And I don't, after about five minutes, I don't know why it took him this long, but after about five minutes, He has a moment of panic. He falls off the ladder. He's kind of broken out of his trance, maybe. But anyways, he falls off his ladder. He stumbles to his feet. He runs. And he goes and tells a sacristan. Sacristan? I guess that's like the guy in charge. It's the guy who runs the parish. And so the monk's like, oh, dude, dude, you won't believe it. You know that giant Jesus we have hanging up in the church? He closes his eyes. And the sacristan (laughs) doesn't even break. It's like, oh, yeah, no, that's no big deal. What? Yeah, no, no, he did that before. 
He, t- he totally did it before. He's sacristan's just filling out paperwork. Here's this quote from this article. He said he was not surprised as he had heard that the Santo Cristo had closed his eyes on one other occasion, and that it was probably brought about by the working of some interior mechanism. Sacristan just goes back into filling out paperwork. Now, my follow-up question would be like, wait a second, you're telling me that Crucifix is actually a giant robot? The one that was built in the 1700s and actually has like a, a clockwork mechanism in its head, which would be far more terrifying, right? Right? I mean, like, the image of Jesus being crucified is already, it's it's supposed to evoke this, like, this just emotional reckoning in you. You're watching this man who died, who was sentenced to, he was basically born to die, but from the time he was born, he was going to be the sacrifice of the world. Now you're telling me he also has a robot brain? Like, I mean, the statue is already built to be unsettling. You were supposed to feel like, we're supposed to feel like, torment and thankfulness when we see the crucifix like we're supposed to understand the pain but also go oh i'm glad he went through that so i don't have to but now you're telling me it's also like an animatronic it's creepier but the monk thinks about it and goes yeah i don't know so he actually later on takes a ladder puts it back up there no one's looking he walks up there and he starts trying to move the g cut he starts trying to move jesus's eyelids He's like putting his fingers and he's like, try, he's try, he's convinced that he saw it close. And the sacristan goes, oh, no, 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 that's happened before. I bet you that's some sort of automatic thing. You know, every Easter he closes his eyes or something. So he's trying to do it. And the monk goes, it's a, no, there was no mechanism. There was no like flap there. It's not like one of those baby dolls when you lay down on their back, the eyes closed. It was nothing like that. But it's it, people, oddly enough, people don't consider it a huge deal. Flash forward till 1919, so five years later. There's a service going on, and the children notice it first. The children notice it first. So when you're on the ground level, because it's a crucifix, if you haven't been in a, a Christian church, the crucifix, it's not ground level. It's kind of elevated, so it, t- it tends to be behind the pulpit. And it, the, the Southern Baptists, I'm Southern Baptist, we use just the cross. We The crucifix we would have... That wasn't the main symbol in the church, but the cross is always above the the minister. And in a Catholic church, I used to go to a Catholic private school, it's the crucifix will be elevated as well. It's not like you can like put your arm against it or something like that. It's specifically high, so you don't do that, so you venerate it. From where it's six feet tall and it's raised up. So from where you're normally at, you can only see the whites of his eyes. Like you're looking up at someone who's 12 feet up in the air. You can kind of just see it at an odd angle, but it would be, which would make it really easier to tell that something's different with the eyes. The kids in the service realize that the statue of Jesus, the crucifix, has closed its eyes once again. And then it begins to spread through the church. Everyone in the church starts to see the eyes closed as well. That's an interesting note because we've talked about that before. That's how a mass hallucination starts. We've done so many stories about mass hysteria where it starts with a small group of people seeing it and then other people also exhibiting that. You had, and this was an interesting part, you had people say it's sweating. Jesus is sweating. You had people go up there on ladders and they could feel the perspiration coming off of his brow. But you also had priests there who said they didn't see anything. This has not been considered an official miracle in the Catholic Church. To be, the Catholic Church has to, like, 
signify that a miracle is real, and saints, you just can't declare saints. They have to have done three miracles in their lifetime, or I think uh, the three miracles can be after they're dead as well. Like if, uh, if someone's like holding a bone, a finger bone or something like that, they get healed. That That's considered a, a miracle. But the Catholic Church, they have to come out and they have to investigate this stuff to make sure that it's a legit miracle. And this one, as far as I could tell, was never actually classified a real miracle because you had priests going i don't see it i didn't see him with his eyes closed i was soon i had my back turned for five minutes and everyone's like priest priest look around he's like i'll get to in a second i'm finishing playing pinochle then he turns around he's like what's all the commotion just sweat there's a puddle of sweat on the floor there were people there who said they didn't see it priests there said i looked at it it looked totally normal that really makes it seem like mass hysteria There was a journalist. You had journalists from all over the world come out. Like, this is a more obscure story now. There's probably a lot of Catholic listeners who are familiar with this, but I had never heard of this before. This is on the conspiracy theory iceberg. Journalists were coming from all over the world back in 1919. Pilgrimages, they'd come here. There was a journalist who was looking at the crucifix, and he sees something that I would consider absolutely terrifying. I I think... Let me just explain it, and then we'll dissect it. He's looking up at this crucifix of Jesus, and he sees... Take a deep breath. Second breath is more labored, more painful. He says he can actually see the muscles tense. The arms try to rip free from the nails in the hands eyes close another labored breath the pain of that man in that form pressing against that cross until finally the death rattle Blood begins pouring out of the statue's mouth. I mean, listen, dude. Everyone wants a sign, right? Of, of your of your belief. Everyone wants to know that it's real. But come on, what's in, that's terrifying. And again, the crucifix is supposed to be a combination of pain and and hope. That this happens for all of us. That this horrible thing happened for all of us. So, but. There's, you know, I've never seen The Passion of the Christ. There's a specific reason I haven't seen Passion of the Christ. Because I don't want to see The Passion of the Christ. Like, I'm sure it's probably a well-made movie. I know a lot of people who've seen it. But it, it basically looks horrifying to me. Um, And that, imagine seeing Passion of the Christ in front of you. And not being able to do anything about it. I mean, it's not like I can hop into the movie, but... Now... There's two ways to look. There's multiple ways to look at the story. One is obviously mass hysteria. If I mean saying this to be disrespectful to anyone's religious beliefs, uh, but I think if you go somewhere, if you if you walk into a house, if you walk into a normal house, you walk around, no big deal. You leave. If you're told that there was someone murdered there, there was a ghost there, or something like that, you may feel something different. You may feel something different. If you if you make a pilgrimage to a site where you are told that that the crucifix is alive, the chances of you seeing something is much higher than not. I think probably the most authentic story is the monk's story. 
He was so close to it. He was so close to it. The other, I, I th- here's the thing. I think something happened. I think there was a miracle here, based on what I've read. I think the monk saw something. I think it probably had done it before. I think the mass hysteria in 1919, it may have closed its eyes again. But then you had people saying they were there and they didn't see it. You know, the priests who were there, that, that was the most interesting thing. The priests were like, I, I didn't see it. I don't know what they're talking about. The sweating. And I mean, we have stigmata. That was something that fascinated me as a child, the idea of stigmata. It still fascinates me, fascinates me but I've never really covered it. It's, it's pretty uh, common. I shouldn't say common. It's a pretty well-known event. I, but I, stigmata always fascinated me. It was funny. I actually was used to be friends. I'm still friends with him. I just haven't talked to him in a while. My buddy Ryan, super devout Catholic, super devout Catholic guy. And he told, it was interesting. So he told me, he goes, uh, yeah, I dreamt that I was at the crucifixion. I watched Jesus get crucified. I was there. And it really uh, uh, terrified me. And I went to my priest. And my priest told me that that's extremely rare. People almost never dream of being at the crucifixion. Out of all the people who have come to the priest over confession or over the years super rare and i thought about that i go i grew up in the church like that was such a big part of my life i went to church probably about three times a week and i never dreamt of being at the crucifixion i guess kind of like it's funny because i thought what how come he gets to be there i'm all walking into his dream i'm like pushing him out of the way but at the same time it's such a horrifying event but yeah, he, he and it is it's super rare. It's super rare to dream that you're at the crucifixion. And the priest said there was, that meant something to my buddy Ryan. That that meant, that was a, that was almost a miracle. That was a holy event. And I thought, yeah, that's weird. I've never, I used to consume three times a week. You know, my dad was a minister. We were always around it, but interesting. So on the, on the one level, I don't remember what I was talking about. <laughs> on the one level, I know I was talking about uh, crucifix. On the one level, we have this story of this. I do believe it was a miracle. I do believe something happened. Whether or not it's a robot head, I don't think so. But actually, and you can't discount that, but the monk did try to discount it and doesn't think the eyes move. We can look at it as that we, we have these type of stories with stigmata. That's what I was talking about, stigmata, bleeding statues and things like that. Stigmata is usually a person with their hands bleeding, but we have issues like that. But... I originally was going to put up the photo of this crucifix for my podcast art, and it's so disturbing. It's so uncanny valley. I couldn't even look at the. I I honestly made it. I I would ask all of you to go to the show notes and look at the photo of this crucifix because it it makes it makes me sick to my stomach. It's the uncanny valley. I've never seen such a realistic statue. I might be building it up for you, but I was like, I don't, there's a lot of people who watch this on YouTube and they don't want to have to look at, I, trust me, I've grown up around Jesus iconography all my life. It's not the fact that it's Jesus, it's not even the fact, this image of Christ looks human. I've never seen anything like it. It looks like a human in pain. I could be building it up, but just even thinking, you know what the uncanny valley is? When something looks so realistic, but you know it's not real, your body actually has a fight or flight response. It basically just has a flight response to it. It's a They believe it's an evolutionary thing that keeps us away from dead bodies. So when you look at CGI that's close to real, but not totally real, makes you sick to your stomach, like Mars meets Moms. 
was super gross. <laughs> that movie was super gross. So you have to do like an Alita battle angel, make the eyes look bigger. This statue, this image looks very human, but you know it's not human. It actually makes you sick to your stomach. I'm actually getting sick to my stomach talking about it. And I was going to use it for the cover art, and I figured no one would listen to this episode. So I don't know if it was the way that... I mean, again, it's not... This isn't the first crucifix that have ever had any sort of blood coming out of it. This isn't the first crucifix that's ever had any miracles attributed to it. But I think that this thing, it one, it's life-size. It's a representation of a person who died horribly in a place where people worship that person, that manifestation of God on earth. There might be a reason why crucifixes are tiny, why generally you want them around your neck or on your wall and aren't a perfect representation of a human in torment. The idea of tulpas is something we've touched on before, and I think if you had an icon to build your tulpa around, it would make it easier for that tulpa to form. Tulpa is a thought form, if you're not familiar with that. It's, you focus so much, you can basically create create a thought form. I'm not trying to be sacrilegious or anything. I hope that's not how this is coming across. Would it be possible to create a tulpa, to create a life form in a religious icon? Or does the fact that it's a religious icon protect it from that sort of psychological, metaphysical meddling? Who knows? Who knows? I don't think really it's ever been investigated. I think that the Catholic Church will either say that this... They haven't said this was a miracle yet. They may consider it was just a case of mass hysteria. That would obviously be one answer. The other answer, it is a miracle, or or certain parts of it was real. The monk actually saw the eyes closed. Or you have the scenario that it's all real, and for whatever reason, the Catholic Church is looking at it and goes, well, that stuff did happen, but it didn't come from God. We're not going to classify it as a miracle. But something did happen. Who knows? Who knows? I would like to think that religious icons are protected in some fashion. And maybe they are. Maybe they are. Maybe it is God reaching out, showing people that miracles can still happen. Or it could be something using the guise of a miracle. You're never really sure until you see it for yourself. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash DeadRabbitRadio. Twitter is at DeadRabbitRadio. DeadRabbitRadio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. Mm-hmm.